Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good afternoon, Bean Town, Boston, Mass, USA. This is Thursday, March. Can you believe it? Is it March 26th? And we're just looking. I'm looking out the window here in South Boston and uh, watching the snow. It seems like it never happened, but it certainly did. And this is going to be a great show because I have my buddy and also a man I respect in, in all ways professionally, also a South Boston native, but uh, kind of living just close by now. I'm going to I'm going to read his introduction that I wrote the other day. Um, author of the play Waiting Waiting for Whitey. Comedian, actor, screenwriter, George McDonald joins Tom in an up-to-date conversation on the production of Waiting for Whitey, as well as his recent article in the Somerville Times about his actual meeting with Whitey Bulger. George will give us the behind-the-scenes inspiration for his work and the trials and tribulations and success of putting up the production. So listen, call in, enjoy the fun. I feel like Charlie Rose, George. <laughs> yeah, well, you're just like Charlie Rose. No question. <laughs> John, well, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. Well, welcome, welcome, welcome. And by the way, the call in number for those of you who are listening live uh, is 646 And just for those of you who are listening live, you will hear the first half hour. And then it will go blank. But the, George and I will continue for another 45, uh, 15 minutes to make it a 45-minute show, which will be on a podcast, so you can ju- jump in at any time. So, All right. For, well, first of all, we, we talked a little bit before the show, and I just have to – I'm going to give you some accolades because I find that you are certainly, in many ways, a renaissance man, especially when it comes to expressing yourself in so many modalities. And I will never forget – that uh, that movie you did with Lenny and and um, Kenny oh, Rogerson, Luff. Kenny Rogerson, Luff. myself, Doug Marston, and uh, Steve Benson basically was a five man cast. Yeah, that we that we shot in uh, one of the early. And actually, you know who was a cast member in that film? A lot of people don't realize this, but the film was based based on the five of us. We had gone to prep school together, and they would do flashbacks when we were kids in prep school. And one of the actors was Chris Evans, the the kid that uh, he's from Sudbury, who grew up to become uh, the guy that plays Johnny Storm in the Fantastic Four, uh, the Torch, and uh, Captain America. He was he was one of the kids. I forget which which one of us he played. I think he he might have played uh, Steve Benson's part. I'm not 100 percent sure, but uh, yeah, that was a ball. That was a that was a fun time, you know. And, Wow. But they and never so, got a distributor, least, so like so indie films, they just you know they kind of you know it'll turn up on TV one of these nights, I'm sure. <laughs> so. Oh, I thought it was a brilliant production. Um, how long? How actually long was the movie? Uh, it was a full length. I think it was about an hour and a half, if I'm not mistaken, ninety minutes. Really? I mean, okay. they wrote a great. Script. I mean, I'll never forget they, your. Yeah, I'll never forget your role there when uh, you, were, you were all at the table. And, and we set, reenact that for me. What was the setup? Because it was an extremely um, compelling and deep uh, portrayal of what was going on. And I think you were talking about, weren't you going back to, uh, you, oh, know, you know. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I had this, uh, there were a couple of monologues in the show that a couple of the, basically the premise for people who have never seen the movie was we we would uh, uh, get to, we 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 had gone to prep school together. We would meet once a year and have this card game and sort of all this stuff would come out at the card game, the jealousies, the who was friends with who and 
whatever. And my character was a character who was an alcoholic who was on the wagon. And in the course of the evening, I, you know, I, I have a slip and I start drinking and I start talking about, and we're all supposed to be just turning 40. That's where the, uh, that's where the magic of cinema came in. Cause I think we're all over 40 at that point, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> but, uh, we, uh, uh, I, the guys that wrote the script, Jonathan and um, I mean, for the life of me, uh, Jonathan Fagenbaum, and I'm just drawing a blank on the other guy's name. I can't. I've, it's been so long since I thought about this. Uh, they uh, they were really cool about letting us. Uh, if we found a better way to say something than was written in the script, and they were also the producers of the film, and it's rare that you know people let you be that flexible with the script. They said if you find a better way to say it, then say it. Or if you want to cut something out, cut it out if it makes it work better. And uh, you know they were they were really great to work with, and the premise of that monologue was sort of like looking back and boy, when we were kids, we had our whole lives ahead of that kind of you know nostalgic sort of thing and I'm sitting at the table and I'm looking around the table, and I knew Doug Marsden uh who we had we had done the play waiting for Whitey together at that point, and I knew Lenny since college, Lenny Clark, and I knew Kenny Rogerson from doing stand-up, and Steve Benson was just such a great guy and a great actor. It's like I felt like I had known him my whole life after I met him. So so it was it was sort of like uh, art imitating life, where it's just sitting there and I'm doing this monologue, and it was pretty, you know, not easy. I shouldn't say easy, but it was like it was pretty uh, pretty close to where we were really at at that point in our lives. So it was very apt, this particular monologue. And it was just, just so much fun to do and uh, – and it was a pretty heavy duty. I, I have to say, I thought I had the best piece of writing to perform in the whole script. I mean, as far as the monologues went, I thought that was the best one that these two guys had come up with, you know. And and it's, if it kills me, I'm going to remember the, the other writer's name before before this podcast is over. Of course. Well, it was, I mean, is, now is there any way to access that film now, YouTube or Gee, I don't know because that's like 1999. It might be on YouTube. I think they still have the website up, www.bluffthemovie. Uh, I believe that's still up. I'm not sure. I don't have my computer oh. in front of me. but uh, Is it but, still uh, on Amazon? I mean, do you have a copy? You must have a oh, copy. Oh, I think you can buy it directly from the website. If uh, I have a copy someplace. I have a whole bunch of uh, movies. I have a DVD of it someplace, I'm sure, and I have it in uh, – but I have a bunch of my stuff in storage, and I'm sure it's in there. I know. Since uh, I've moved, well, probably should, since then I've uh, moved half a dozen times since that since that shoot. So, well, since this is your show, do you have a website? Do I, I have to admit I am like I am being dragged into the 21st century, kicking and screaming. I don't even have a smartphone. I uh, yeah, I'm I'm slow on the uptake with a lot of stuff like that. I do not have a website. No, no. Well, <laughs> I have a Facebook page. That's as close as I get. <laughs> in which you don't post very often, I noticed. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm not on the computer all that much. I mean, I, I love it for writing purposes. I mean, it's just so, you know, for the long, let's let's put it this way. For the longest time, uh, people were trying to convince me, get rid of a typewriter and get a computer. You were not going to believe the difference. And I'm thinking, you're crazy. A typewriter is great. I like the sound of the typewriter, blah, blah, blah. And um, uh, once I switched over, I said, oh, yeah, no wonder they were giving me those looks. I was out of my mind. This is so much, so much better. <laughs> so... But oh, other than uh, writing stuff and checking my Facebook page and my emails, I'm not really on the computer all that much, you know. So I might I might recommend, especially with all of the, uh, you know, with everything that's happening with waiting waiting for Whitey, uh, this recent yeah. piece in the Sumble Times. Obviously, it would be great to go to your site and see. You should be able to have somebody edit that clip for you and post it on your site because it is yeah. truly a testimonial to your ability to to act 
And um, oh, you really, I like I, I said, he is put it on my demo reel. You know, on my, on my acting demo reel, which is also in storage someplace. Like I say, I've moved at least <laughs> half a dozen times since then. So you know, I mean, my stuff is in Talk boxes someplace, care- Tom. <laughs> a carefree artist. George, or just a disorganized one, <laughs> terribly disorganized. <laughs> well, so um, you know, and, and just you know, for those who are comics who want to be actors, or so those actors that might be listening, and again, if anybody wants to jump in here at six four six nine two nine two four five one, how did you? I mean, because that, like I said, I've seen some amazing actors come along, but that particular scene. Um, how did you get into it? I mean, uh, what, what, what did you um, did you just kind of get into the moment and you saw those guys around you and? Yeah, well, that, I mean, like I say, a lot of it really. I mean, a lot of what the dialogue I was saying really was apropos to the people sitting around the table. So the moment became very real. It was, it was, uh, you know, it was as those. You know, I didn't have to reach too deep uh, to. Uh, to really find the truth of the moment, you know, and that's always what you're looking for, I guess, as an actor, is trying to find, you know, some people think it's like, oh, you're faking, you, you're making believe up there. It's like, well, there is, to some degree, it is make believe, but but you're really trying to find the, the honesty and the truth of the moment. And, and I was a guy who, uh, you know, I started acting and I started stand up almost at exactly the same time. I started uh, stand up in 1979 and I started acting around 1981 so i was into both of them sort of alternately i wasn't doing stand-up as a living at that point but by 1983 the the boom of all the night comedy clubs around took off and uh very quickly i was doing you know i didn't have any time to do much of anything else i was just really pursuing stand-up and they were you know i was making a living doing it so i just said well i guess i'll go down this road this is the direction i'm being being pulled into so might as well you know Ride the horse in the direction it's going. So, um, and yeah, well, I got back obviously, to um, Yeah, go ahead. I want to hear the. So I was going to say I got back to acting later when you know stand up in the early in the uh, early nineties. There was kind of a cooling off period. A lot of clubs closed and whatnot. So that's when I, I sort of got rededicated to pursuing. I mean, I got into doing commercials and stuff like that when I was still in the early stand up days, but. Uh, uh, as far as actually pursuing like legit serious acting, I that didn't I didn't get back into that until early like early like 1990 I think I moved down to New York I think that's when it was 90, 90 to 95 I think I lived down there and had a place down there with a couple other comics from Boston and and uh, you know studied down there and with some really good people and uh, was lucky to lucky to do so and uh, that's uh, so I you know I had a pretty good balance by the time that was all be- that all happened before I got to do that film Bluff before. Uh, you know, so I mean, I was I was definitely well prepared. By the by, the, that's the other thing. By the time somebody gives you something that's a really nice piece of material to do, if you're not ready for it, you're kind of you're kind of sunk. You know, so when they gave me that monologue, I knew I said, "Hey, this is pretty." Good. And I had done some writing myself at that point. I said, "Yeah, this is pretty good. This is I'm, I'm, this is the best piece of writing I, for my in my opinion." And and I wasn't saying it just because it was my character, but. You know, it was. I, I said, okay, I think I can. I think I can really do something with this. You know, so that's you know, opportunity and you know, readiness kind of meet at that point. Yeah. So, so let me ask you because we're going to move over to sure. you know, waiting for writing and writing. Do you know that? Uh, well, first of all, what is the, the? Do you feel is the distinction? Is it the, was there a big jump going from stand up to acting? Or what's the what's the 
bridge well, there. I, 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 I mean, think they're both pretty close. I think one of the big differences is obviously, a, uh, you know, if you're in a play, uh, and then live acting we're talking about, I guess, would be the closest thing to stand-up, certainly. If you're in a play, you've got other actors around you, you're interacting with those people, you have the fourth wall, and, you know, some types of plays you actually break the fourth wall and you step out of character and talk directly to the audience. But in a lot, most plays, I think, you, you're really interacting with the other actors on stage and you're kind of making believe you don't know the audience is there so to speak but a comic you come out and pow you come right you know like you're fired out of a cannon the first thing you do is come right through that fourth wall and interact with the audience and uh, and also too like actors generally speaking if you're in a theater i mean People are like really listening and being quiet, but if you're in a nightclub, it's a whole different environment. You know, people are drinking. You know, you know, trays are getting dropped. I mean, there's all kinds of they're mixing drinks at the bar. I mean, you got all kinds of noise, so it's a whole different, <laughs> whole different set of skills involved. To like, you know, you, you actors always say you have to really be able to listen. But for comics, it's like you're, you're certainly aware of all that other stuff happening, but you have, to, you have to not listen to it. You have to tune it out. So it's almost sort of a, a different, you know, it's a balancing act, but in a different direction kind of. Uh, I always found anyway that it seemed to be, you know, you can't, you, you know, it's, you're not going to tell jokes in a library, that's for sure. It's not going to be like a study that's hall. So you're certainly going to, so, so it's always going to so, be noise. So, so. so stand-up helped, yes or no? Oh, I think definitely. I, well, I think things happen when you're doing stand-up that would never in a million years happen when you're, you know, it's like the Paris Island boot camp of uh, of uh, show business because, you know, stuff happens in a nightclub when people are drinking that in a million years you're, you're not going to see that happen in a theater. You know, I mean, fights breaking out. Until you, you know, we both, we both worked in clubs where, like, a fist fight would break out and they'd be right at the foot of the stage. You know, I mean, I, I don't and, know. And hopefully they're not coming for you. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, preferably that would be the case, you know. And then you just call a fight, you know, and then he took another left, got another left, you know. I mean, you just try to, you know, somehow work it into your bit. But uh, uh, you know, and that has happened. Uh, there are a couple of different things, sure. but uh, yeah. So all right, now the so, zone when you, obviously you hit the zone when you did that scene, and it, yeah. we all we talk about the zone when you write. Are they similar to you? Oh, I think so. I think I mean as far as. Certainly, as far as the uh, the level of satisfaction, we were talking about this before the podcast started. Uh, you know, when you have a really good set on stage as a stand-up, there's just like, you know, there's a rush to it. And um, I'm lucky because when I sit down and I write a sentence and I get it the way I want it, there's a rush to that, too, that I think is certainly equal. It's totally different, but it's definitely that that, that sense of satisfaction. You go, man, that's it right there, you know, when, yeah. when you get that. Well, it's all I'm talking about was where... All of a sudden, you know, everybody talks about this. It's not you anymore. It's something else, and you're just kind of racing to keep up with it. Right. Well, the same thing with the sentence. With you know, after it went as a writer, when you get that sentence or that line of dialogue exactly the way you want it, you kind of you sitting there, kind of going like, "Wow, where did that come from?" You know. Or, or when yeah. you're really on a roll. I mean, I know there was a one act play that I wrote called "In a Better Place." And that thing only had like maybe one rewrite, and it was like taking dictation. I swear to God, it was like it was yep. really like yep. I could. It was only two characters, but it was like I was a fly on the wall, and I was just could hear exactly what these two people were saying. And when I got to the end of it, it was like, wow, where did that come from? But you know, yep. I'm lucky it was given to me to write down, and I can put my name on it. Yep. So, and that actually, that play actually got performed out at a place called uh, Theater 68 out in Los Angeles. I had a reading out there, and um, 
and a, a, a full production. This back in, uh, oh, God, a few years ago. I can't remember when. But Were you but, in uh, the production? Uh, no, I was not in that. I was actually living back here in Boston when that when that went up. I went to the reading. I was I couldn't get out there to the to the production, but uh, but I, I I'm actually working on turning that and a, a like two uh, two other one acts and possibly four and cr- put those all together and make them like one play so that they're they're all about the same topic more or less and you just have them like go from one one act to the next so that you could have a, a full show out of the thing, an hour and a half, something like that, you know? Wow. Was that a, was that the, the stand-up theme? Because you did write one about stand-up. I, I did. That's a full-length play, actually, in and of itself, which is called okay. uh, At the Funny Factory. And that's that's kind of based, That's to answer your question, no, that's a different play. That's, that's based on working um, in the ding-ho, and everybody was trying to, uh, that play's really about solidarity, but it's sort of based on my days back working at the ding-ho comedy club in Cambridge with uh, Lenny and uh, Steve Sweeney and Barry Crimmins, of course, was the, he was the man who, who ran the whole place. Barry was terrific. And uh, uh, gave us all a clubhouse. Barry's the guy that gave us all a clubhouse to work in. And, uh, I, you know, without him, I mean, myself and a lot of other people never would have been become real comics. I mean, I'm, I'm convinced of that. So, uh, right, but it's sort right, of based, yeah. it's based on those, uh, again, it's, it's not on, not an autobiographical play. It's, but it's based on sort of all of those same elements. You take people that are, you know, it's set back in the eighties in Boston in a comedy club. And there, these people are all trying to get on, you know, the, the gold standard for us, when we were working back then was getting on the tonight show with Johnny Carson. Everybody wanted that show. And that was, you get on that show, you had a good set. You're in, you're in real show business, obviously like Stephen Wright. And, yes. And that's what we were all shooting for. So I wrote a play, you know, I created this, you know, my own mythology. I wrote this, they were all trying to get on this show called, um, uh, now I'm getting, I'm drawing a blank on the character's name, but I, I created the, the nighttime show, which is sort of a, a knockoff, obviously supposed to be like the tonight show. And everybody wants to get on the show and if they get a set on that show, and and in in the uh, in the course of the play, what ha- it's a two act play, and in the first act, by the end of Act One, they realize that a talent scout from the nighttime show is at, it's supposed to be a regular Friday night in the club, but they get a call and they realize that the talent scout is making a surprise visit to the club, and if you have a good set, you could conceivably make your bones and be on the nighttime show. So that's sort of their, that's the brass ring they're all going after, and that's you know, and this Act Two is. You know, fragments of them doing stand-up, but also like who who rises to the occasion, who double crosses who, who does you know who all the all you know all the uh, you know the plot thickens as it were in the second act, and you know so and but basically it's all about the play. That play is really about solidarity and sticking together, and uh, you know nice. in unity there is strength, and that's really really the theme of that show. But uh, uh, that one has yet to be produced. That had a reading. Uh, in Boston at Jimmy Tingle's Off-Broadway Theater and also at, uh, actually, Davis Square in Somerville, and also had a reading at Paul Kozlowski's uh, uh, Fake Gallery out in Los Angeles. So, nice. Uh, Melrose. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and that one actually... Today? Yeah, yeah, that one... Uh, How many plays have you written? Uh, uh, let's see, a couple of one. Let's say three, four... I think five. Fantastic. Uh, two two full-length plays and three one-act plays. So... Oh, fantastic. Okay, so uh, anything you want to add before I start going down the road to Whitey? No, 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 that's okay. Sure. Yeah. yeah away. The, uh, maybe I shouldn't use well, that expression when talk about Whitey. 
Yeah, you <laughs> you uh, <laughs> you had told me the story, you know, um, over the phone or whatever about right. actually meeting Whitey, and so right. do you want to just bring, you know, just encapsulate that story a little bit for the listener? Yeah, sure. It was. Uh, 1977, I was still living in South Boston. I was in college. I was going to UMass Boston over at the Harbor Campus right on uh, Marcy Boulevard. And uh, it was the first year, I believe, uh, maybe the second year that the campus was open. And I used to uh, walk down to the boulevard and just stick my thumb out. It was a short hop from the campus to South Boston. And, I, you know, I mean, I see a kid standing there with his thumb out and uh, books under his arm. So usually somebody would pick you up hitchhiking. So the car, a car pulled over, and and I looked through the windshield, and I kind of recognized the guy driving, but I thought it was somebody I went to school with, and I jumped in the car, and I had also just smoked a joint. It was 1977, and uh, jumped in the car and, you know, hey, how you doing, buddy? You know, whatever. It was all, like, over, overly friendly because I thought it was somebody I knew, and he kind of gave me this really odd look, and I said, oh, Oh, gee, I'm sorry. I I thought I recognized you. And he said, well, you do recognize me. But it's, I, I said, I thought I recognized you from school. And he said, well, you probably do recognize me, but not from school. And then he told me his name, and he made it very clear who he was. And, uh, you know, we played the name game a little bit, like, oh, because oh, I knew some people. I know this person, and you know that. But, oh, okay, fine. You know, so, and then he said, where are you going? And, and then Bulger just he pulled away and uh, drove along the boulevard and, um, uh, took the most roundabout way you can imagine to get to where I was going, which was only maybe three, four minutes away. And about 10 minutes later, he dropped me off my spot, you know, exactly where I was going. And uh, just kind of bizarre because I'm sitting in the car going like, oh, my God, I know who this guy is. And it's like, this is not somebody – first of all, why is he picking me up hitchhiking? Right. Secondly, I mean, I – I, this is not really somebody I want to hang around with, you know. <laughs> I mean, the guy definitely, you know, had a rep as a, like, you know, had, you know, killed his way to the top, as it were, I guess. And uh, certainly not somebody that I felt like hanging out with. So I was, I couldn't wait to get out of the car. And, uh, yeah, he, could have, he couldn't have been nicer the whole ride. Okay, take it easy, you know. She waited <laughs> drove off, and I'm like, yeah, I'll see you. You know, I'm thinking, like, what was that about, you know? So it's just this really weird sort of. A uh, sort of moment, uh, you know. And actually, the whole thing took maybe all of ten minutes, and uh, yeah. it was just this really weird thing. And afterwards, I mean, this is kind of the sort of level of uh, uh, how low profile he had at the time. I can remember telling people from South Boston, "Do you know who picked me up hitchhiking? Whitey Bulger." And they said, "Who's that?" You know, wow. so a lot of people didn't even know who he was at that point. He had n- nothing like you know, you know, all over the news like he is now. You know, so right. So that was uh, just kind of a very bizarre moment. And uh, I mean, the good thing about growing up in Southie is you, at that time, you grew up with a lot of people that were like <laughs> crazy <laughs> and thieving, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. killer types who you who you knew you you know you couldn't help but bump into these people. They all, some many of them lived in the neighborhood, but there are also like a lot of hard work and regular normal people that lived there too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, exactly. you know, so it wasn't that out of the it was it was out of the ordinary that the guy would pick me up hitchhiking, not that he would exist, but, you know, I mean, just certainly nobody that you really want to be hanging around with. That wasn't, that wasn't my world, you know? So, <laughs> All right. So now was that in any way connected to waiting for Whitey? Oh, to the play. Uh, well, somewhat actually what the, one of the, a couple of the, the things that influenced the play were, uh, because I wrote that when I was down in New York, I was trying to, 
I was always trying to find, I was taking acting classes, and I was always trying to find scenes and monologues that I could do in the acting classes that really resonated with me, that really clicked. And it was tough. It was tough to find stuff. And, I mean, it's time-consuming to read all these plays and whatever. And what happened was uh, uh, a friend of mine was telling me a story about something that had happened in the psychologist sort of stuff that it, this is, you know, I, and meanwhile, I'm down in New York, but I'm shooting back and forth to Boston, to New York all the time, doing doing stand-up gigs on the weekend and taking these acting classes during the week. And I, at the time, I got signed by an agent down there for commercials, so I was going out for commercials. Then I'd come up here on the weekends and do stand-up. And uh, this friend of mine, Mike, he was telling me this story, uh, sort of like about the neighborhood, about this different stuff that happened. And, and he went off on a on a tear for about five or ten minutes about this story and i said and in my head i i was like well i gotta write a character like that like 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 this guy right here who's you know or, or somebody with this sort of with this sort of cadence to his speech and the way that he talks it's like i could perform something like that but it's got to be about something you know let me you know and at this time it's the 90s like whitey bulger's name was all over the papers and he had won the lottery and it was all this other crazy stuff you know and uh uh, you know, and the feds were like breathing down his neck, and you know, it was a lot of it all over the paper. At this point, he hadn't uh, he hadn't uh, gone on the lam, as it were. And um, what happened was, I wrote a monologue that I did in the acting class, and uh, about a guy's talking about overthrowing the local crime boss. And I said, well, I might as well use the name Whitey. Why not? I mean, that's that kept it, you know, pretty you know, pretty close to home. And uh, so I, I wrote a. I wrote what I thought was a monologue for this one character sitting at a table playing cards with these other two characters, and he's talking about trying to overthrow the local crime boss. And what happened when I did it in the class, it didn't work. And it became apparent that, well, if you really had three guys like this, three guys that were criminal types, they would never let that one guy talk that long. They would interrupt him. They'd be... You know, did with what other stuff. So what I did was I took what I I took what I had already written, and I said, okay, this guy will say this part of it, and this guy will say that, and you know, so I sort of distributed the uh, the dialogue amongst the three guys, and without really meaning to write a scene, I end up writing a scene, and we did the scene in the class, and it absolutely killed. And the teacher said, wow, that's great. What's that from? And I said, uh, it's not from anything. I wrote it. <laughs> you know, and I said. He said, you wrote that? And I said, this is the acting teacher. Sam Groom was my acting teacher at the time. And I said, yeah, uh, which which I didn't think was such a big deal because I was a comic and I had written my own jokes for the stage. So to me, it was like, yeah, I wrote it. So what? You know? And he said, you're a writer and you don't even know it. And I said, oh, uh, okay. You know, but I didn't have a, I mean, that was the only thing I had written. So I kind of submitted that to a couple of different one-act play festivals and got no response. Actually, somebody sent it back and said, this is not a one-act play. This is a smaller piece of a bigger thing. And I said, well, that's news to me, you know. So I said, well, okay, let me follow that lead and take up that challenge. So what happens next? So I started kind of from that premise. I had never taken a playwriting course or anything like that. So I started writing, you know, what happens next and just went started that way and then finally, you know, got to Got to a, and, and of course, I put in a character there that's the local crime boss, but I, I wasn't really interested in telling. First of all, I didn't know the Whitey Bulger story in complete, you know, in, in complete form, so I wasn't really interested in telling that. So I basically, again, used my created my own mythology and created this character, who, uh, who was this crazy 
gang boss who was an albino who was also like this religious freak. He's got all these sort of uh, uh, religious icons all over his office, but he's got none of the true meaning of them. You know, so, you know, I created this character. And actually, by the time I wrote the, finished writing the play, Bulger had already taken off and it was already, you know, every all those other guys got arrested and he was... Uh, you know, it was kind of common knowledge. It was like people, they were saying that he was had been an FBI informer and all this stuff. So I said, wow, that's that's a great character, a guy that's a crime boss who's also an informer because that's a character who's in conflict with himself. So to me, I was like, yeah, yeah, that's that that's interesting, you know. So, you know, so using all that stuff, I kind of mixed them all. And actually, when the play first got up into – the play was produced in 1997 at the Lansdowne Street Playhouse. And and again, an odd thing had happened by accident. I did a reading there, and they came up to me, and they said, we want to produce the play. Which And I didn't realize how how rare that is that that happens, because I didn't know that much about playwriting at the time. And uh, um, we put the play up, and while the play was up and running, it got a great review in the Globe, and a pretty good review in the Herald, but the Globe really, like, really loved it. And uh, I got a call from I forget which of the two guys they were in the process the guys that worked for the globe they were in the process of writing the book Black Mass and and I wow. told them, I said you know it's they wanted to interview me for the book or something I said well I got to to be honest it's not really the Whitey Bulger story I mean I got I I kind of wish I don't didn't have a character in the name Whitey now because you know it's it's you know certainly some of those elements are in there but that's this is not meant to be you know a docudrama by any means, you know, where it's like we're putting up a play and it's supposed to be about this actual person. It's like, I, you know, to me, it's way more interesting to write fiction because you don't have to stick to the real story. You can make up whatever. Oh, exactly. Who wants to do the reference work? I don't. Right, you know? exactly. you got to have citations and you got to have all this other <laughs> stuff. Right. And, you know, this, that, right. It's like, I just want, you know, I mean, I like the idea of being able to write and as you're writing, anything can happen. And if you have to stick yep. to what really happened, a story, then, you know, you're kind of hamstrung right there. So, so, uh, well, and you know, so, I, I I I was there at the play. I I don't know if I went twice or I think I did, but I was just blown away at, at how how magnificent it really you. was. And you talked about the Globe. They compared you to David Mamet. Yeah, yeah, they liked. Well, actually, one of the things that I really Bruce McCabe was the guy from the Globe that wrote the article. And one of the things that I really loved about that review, I mean, not only obviously I liked the fact that he liked the play, but he really got who the writers were that influenced me, which was George Higgins and David Mamet and um, what's his name? Um, uh, I think he said Elmore Leonard and a couple of other guys that he, he, he you know, he used all of those those names as references and, you know, if you move over, there's a new guy in town and something something along those lines. I forget how it was written, but he, he was absolutely right. Those were the people I read and he picked up on that from watching the play and I was like, wow, that's extremely flattering because in my, for my money those guys are just such terrific writers you know and if you put me in that category i am thrilled you know so uh so it was fun i mean it was, that was a lot of fun and then the play i think it was uh i did a reading of the play out in los angeles by then i was living i moved out to la in 1999 and by 2000 there was a thing at the playwrights kitchen ensemble at dan loria the guy that had played the dad in the wonder years He's also played uh, uh, Vince Lombardi on Broadway just recently. He's uh, uh, the actor, Dan Laurier, great guy. He used to do a thing called the Playwrights Kitchen Ensemble at the Coronet Theater in L.A., and uh, we ended up putting Whitey up on the stage there and uh, in a reading. 
and um, kind of got a great review, a great reaction. It didn't really get reviewed, but uh, from that, as a result of that, what ended up happening is the play got produced out in L.A. at a place called the Elephant Performance Lab, which was in the Lillian Theater, which was in Hollywood, and um, uh, which encouraged me to. Re, uh, adapted into a screenplay to try to get the movie made. You know, I mean, I was always using the Chaz Palminteri sort of uh, blueprint for success because he did that. A Bronx Tale was a one-man show. I mean, this wasn't a one-man show. This had six, seven characters in it. Actually, if you want to count the strange man at the end, and uh, um, but I was using that as the blueprint for success. Let me write this play. And again, I didn't know how to write a screenplay then, I, but I was doing all these scenes for my acting class, so I sort of understood the structure and the format of, of play, play scenes. So, so you know, so that uh, that led to one thing. You know, if one thing leads to another, you just always it's always a surprise to me too how some of this stuff. It just it, it does take a long time, but uh, if you keep swinging, it, one thing does lead to another. So. Yeah, you know, I've always talking about um, learning that myself, and uh, you know, I've always been a student of life um, for, for a myriad of reasons. Mostly because I was told for a long time, you know, <laughs> you're lucky to be alive because the, you know, I had a terminal form of cancer that only five percent survived. And what right. that taught me at such an early age was, man, just go for the gold. You know, just live it up. You know, experience it all as it could be over yeah. at any time. And um, yep. and right now, you know, I mean, I'm in a phase where you're absolutely right. I mean, to have made it <laughs> to this stage of my life and being able to look back at a lot of occurrences. And, you know, Steve Jobs is one of my heroes, and his, you know, he, he, he has this great quote, you know, my time is limited, I'm not going to waste it by living somebody else's life. And he says, you will never know, looking forward, how all of the dots will connect. But you will get to a point in your life where you can look backward and, and see, and it all makes sense then. But it, oh, it yeah. is. A, I, yeah. I was going to say, I totally have, agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you have to trust. And he says, what's going on is you have to trust in something. You have to believe in something, whether it's, it's life, whether it's, you know, your, your God, whether it's yourself, whether it's life itself, that there is something guiding you. Uh, and taking you on to connect those dots. So you're right. I mean, this is why I love this as a great example of, you know, and, well, using that, what happened to you, as advice for any, say, of the comics that might be listening or anybody who's listening that's got an idea for a story, um, what would your advice be? I mean, that they they don't think they're writers, and yet you discovered that you were. Well, I I think... You know, one of the things that people, one of the questions that uh, I've heard a lot, a lot is, how long did it take you to write that? And I, I can never give somebody an accurate answer because I didn't keep track of how long it took to write it, uh, to get it to the way that I wanted it. But I, I, you know, I mean, there's there's books write write a script in 90 days or whatever, which is great if you can write a script in 90 days, that's fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I've, some people have said I. Uh, They've written movie scripts in like 30 days, you know, and uh, whatever, however long it takes. But I think the fact of the matter is it's just like it takes as long as it's going to take, and the time's going to go by anyway. So instead of fixating on how long it's going to take to write something and get discouraged, just write it anyway, you know? I mean, just just write it anyway. If the story's in you, if you really have to... If you really feel compelled to story, not, nobody can t- nobody can prevent you from from telling a story. I, what I would tell anybody that was a writer is, don't 
walk around telling too pe- many people a story, not because they're going to steal it, but because, well, they might, but not necessarily because they're going to steal it. But I have found that the more I tell people the story of something I'm working on, the less I feel like writing about it because I kind of got it off my chest. I already told so-and-so about the story. Why, why do I have to write it now? You know what I mean? That's right. So it's better to just, you know, keep, keep it to yourself. And then when it's done, you actually have – that's one of the things I love about writing a play or a screenplay or something like that. It's like when it's done, it isn't like – it's great when you have a, a great set doing stand-up. It's it's amazing. There's it's, there's nothing like it. Or if you're in a play and the play just rocks, there's nothing like it. But when you finish writing something, you know when the sh- when the play's over or the stand-up gig is over, it's over. It's gone. It's like you, you know you might videotape it, but it's not the same thing. But when when you write something, you actually have this concrete script you're holding right in. You can actually hold it right in your hand and hand it to somebody. It's this real thing. It's not this kind of ethereal thing that just goes off into the vapor someplace, you know? I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know, stand-up and, and performing. That's one of the beautiful things about it. It's, it's like, that's why that's why I did stand-up for 20 years. It was it was pretty much different every night. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. You know, but, well, again, you but know, the, and I'm, I'm of the same ilk right now as I'm trying to – to say to the younger comics, look, you know, if you can do stand-up, it's it's only the beginning, it's only the threshold, uh, you know, the it's the platform from which you can now jump and express yourself in so many different ways, and don't limit yourself. You can do it through film. I mean, especially so easy today to produce anything on your smartphone. I mean, right, you know, right, uh, yeah. and and I mean, you can write a screenplay on on your smartphone if you so choose. But you're right. I mean, I just. I've told you, you know, I've been working on this, you know, this concept of Beantown and these beans that are descendants of Jack and the Beanstalk, and I happen to connect with a a phenomenal actress and comedian herself, uh, Tammy Pooler, and we try to write at least once a week, and at the end of a year and about a quarter, uh, you know, I'm holding on to eight you know, CDs completed over eight hours of content. And you're right, there's, you can look at that, you can touch it, you can feel it, you can hear it, and you say, now! <laughs> That's yeah. a real sense of accomplishment. Oh, yeah, it's like a concrete thing. It's right there. It's 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 in your hand, you know, and it's a, that's a pretty cool feeling, you know. I mean, and I think that's what one of the things that initially intrigued me so much about writing was... And again, I was using a typewriter at the time. I mean, this was when when most people had computers. Uh, just to see and at the, just to see something idea for a piece of dialogue that I had in in typeface was like, wow, that looks pretty cool. You know, I mean, it was just yeah. a simple thing, but it was enough to hook me and make me want to like do it more. You know, and I mean, it's it's like whatever works. I guess whatever gets you there. You know, so. Uh, yeah, exactly. And today, I mean, it's just miraculous. Again, what Steve Jobs has done, he has an app called uh, iBooks Author. And, you know, you just take your text and you put a few pictures and you put some media in there. And all of a sudden, you've got this multimedia book that is yeah. really alive. And it, you just press a button and it gets published. And, and, and literally, you know, seconds after you've completed the work, it's available to the world. And, you know, that's really a rush to know that, you know, you don't, after you've done this, I mean, I, how many people have been discovered saying, oh, so what if I do write one? How will I ever get it published or known? Well, that's not an issue anymore. It will get seen. Right. 
Right, right. And also, too, it's like, I, you know, it's one of those things, too, which is, I mean, in, instead of focusing on, like, the result of, like, what happens after I complete this thing, I mean, that's a whole other a whole other ride, I think, that you go on. Uh, like, for example, with the with the Whitey thing, I adapted into a screenplay, and it's like, okay, you know, make me rich and famous. I'm living out in Hollywood now. Where's my? I want to get my screenplay done, and blah blah blah. And and I actually didn't get the screenplay options. Nobody put up any money until I had already moved back here. Now that was certainly not my plan. And then the you know, and everything was this is going to be great. And then the option ran its course, and nobody picked up the option, and the script reverted back to me. So it's like you never know. You never know what's going to happen. And actually, I'm taking a different angle on it right now. And now that I'm back here, I'm thinking of uh, – I actually might – I'm not sure which of the two play, full-length plays I want to put up first, Waiting for Whitey or uh, At the Funny Factory, the one about the comedians set back in the Ding Ho era. Uh, uh, but one of those two plays um, I'm definitely going to be putting up in the sometime in the future, not too far in the future, you know, and uh, – I mean that's a that's a I'm not going to be in them this time. I'm getting a little long in the tooth for that, and I think I'd rather direct them rather than act in them. But uh, uh, it's you know that's that's going to be an interesting an interesting ride. <laughs> yeah, and well, again, you um, without getting into to details, you have the resources to put them up yourself now, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So so basically, as I see it, the, the big the big trick is for that is trying to find what I would deem to be the right place to do it, the place where, you, you know, where all, all the things fall into place. And like you say, it's like, you know, when it shows up, you'll know it, you know, when, uh, I mean, right. and that's fun too. I mean, particularly that, particularly the play about the comedians. I mean, we only, we did a reading at, uh, uh, at Jimmy Tingle's place back here. I did the first reading at the fake gallery in Los Angeles and then we did a reading at Jimmy's Off-Broadway Theater over in Davis Square. And I had done a rewrite at that point. And I've rewritten that play several times since then and fine-tuned it and it made it even better. And, uh, yeah, I'm pretty I'm pretty psyched about that one as well. It's a little bit of a difference. There's nine characters in that play versus six in Waiting for Whitey. So if you're going to put it up, it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bit more work. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's certainly worth it, you know, if you find the right place. You know, I mean, to put it up for six weeks just to stroke my ego doesn't really make any sense to me. But to put it up, try to find a place where you could put it up, and if the thing worked, you could, if it would be held over for a little while. That's that's what I'm looking for. So, so right. yeah, I mean, right. it's right. It, the place that's supposed to show. You know, like I say, when when the time is right, it will it'll fall into place. I'm sure. Yeah, well, you know, you have to have, and that's, you know, I've been spending my entire life, you know, again, I feel that I have a purpose, and, you know, I've achieved so much in my life, and I've had, when I look back, I cannot believe how blessed I was to live and experience and do all the things, stand-up, obviously, being one of them, because that was never in my game plan, and the oh, fact yeah, that that happened, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we could, you and I could do a whole show on, you know the, what I call late, lately the man behind the curtain, that invisible part of the orchestration of how our lives go. You know we think we're in control, and you know from some of the spiritual lessons you've learned that you know you you know we're all, all fools to think that we're driving the bus. Oh yeah, I mean so many times you look back on things and you realize um, that it's like. Oh my God! Like I say, when you get those, when you get that, you know, that one act play that came to me like it was dictation. It's like, where does that come from? Where does that, 
you know, where does this stuff come from? I mean, it's coming from someplace. <laughs> you know? I, I don't know. I can't explain it. But I mean, you know, when I I know it when I see it, and I try to get out of the way. You know, like the great quote from George exactly. Bernard Shaw. They said, "How do you write a play?" He said, "I get the characters talking and try to get out of the way." <laughs> you know, and that's pretty good advice, I think. <laughs> exactly. So, well. You know, unfortunately, they're going to shut us off. I told you the 45 minutes would fly. It flew for me, certainly. Wow. I think yeah. You, yeah, well, I, I wish you had a website because you'd be able to embed this into the website, and when people come on, they'd be able to hear it. But it will be a podcast, so anybody who's listening, and I'll post it now on your page and on my page. And um, and that's the fun part of these is you just never like all of this. It's done. It's real. It exists. Uh, it could exist forever because these things are existing forever. And um, we could even burn it to CD, which I, I think I will do for you. And, um, oh, great. you know, there we go. So thank you so much, and let's do another one. Oh, I'd love to, Tom. Thanks so much for having me on, man. It was great fun. All right, George. Great show. Great show. Thanks. All right, take thank care, you. man. Have a great day. You too. Have a good one. George McDonald, author. I love doing this. Screenwriter, actor, playwright, comedian, and more. Again, great human. All right. Take care. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening, folks. Bye. Take care, brother. All right. Peace.